Welcome to Season 3 of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This season is a little bit different. It's all about NATO. Yes, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. With the help of media and defense experts, we'll be breaking down what NATO is all about. We'll be focusing on cyber attacks, decision-making, public policy, crisis management, and you know it wouldn't be media-minded if we didn't sprinkle in a little disinformation in the mix. This podcast is produced by Shata UK, the leading political and media literacy organization, and is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US mission to NATO. I'm your host, Matteo Bergamini, founder and CEO of Shata UK, here to teach you more about global security through the lens of NATO. Let's get to it. Good morning and thank you for joining us, um, Benedetta Beretti. Um, she is a foreign policy and security researcher, analyst, consultant, author and lecturer. Um, before we begin with the questions, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research? Sure, and it's great to be with you all uh, this morning. I'm, as you said, ben, my name is Benedetta Berti. Uh, at the moment, I am the head of the policy planning unit in the office of the Secretary General of NATO. And in that capacity, I work with a team and together we think about the future of the alliance. We provide political and strategic advice to the secretary general. Uh, we engage in forward-looking research. We do horizon scanning, foresight. We try to think about uh, what's going to happen next and how can we best prepare um, our alliance to meet the challenges of the future. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, my background is, as you, as you mentioned, more academia, policy, research, think tanks, and field work on crisis management, protection of civilians in conflict, and uh, security, uh, security and human security more specifically. So I come from a security background, but I have been uh, in this policy capacity at NATO for roughly four years and a bit. Amazing, amazing. What is horizon scanning that you mentioned? Well, it's really a methodology, but the, the concept behind it and the, the type of work that we try to do here is try to it's look at what's look at what's happening over the horizon. Think about what are your basic assumptions about reality today and how can these assumptions lead you to uh, underestimate a tr rising trends? How can they lead you to not see potential uh, changes in the political, economic, social landscape? So it's really um, a methodology, but mostly it's a way of working in which you try to constantly check your assumption, understand where they come from, look at how they may uh, prevent you from seeing the full picture and trying to really complement the, the, the current thinking uh, by adding different perspectives. So thinking about what are we not seeing? What are we not discussing? What should we be thinking about? Uh, how are all our assumptions leading us, to, are, are all our assumptions leading us to the right outcome or not? So it's, uh, I think it's, it, in my opinion, it's a really important part of our work in policy planning is to always uh, try to understand all the different options and most importantly to think about what we are not thinking which is in itself a great challenge as you can imagine 
Yeah, definitely, definitely. So almost like almost like future proofing or trying to future future plan as much as possible. Right. And I think that's 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 certainly a term that has become more and more fashionable. We use it as well. We look at uh, at our alliance, uh, NATO, and how it has evolved and continued to, to evolve over the last seven decades. And we're always thinking about how do you make sure that it continues to withstand the test of time and it's future proof. So it's definitely part uh, and parcel of the of the thinking here at here at the headquarters. Amazing, amazing. And what do you believe is NATO's approach to promoting democracy across the world? Right. So let me. So let's shift gears a little bit and go more into the uh, the the work of the the alliance and the work of uh, of NATO and what we do what we do here on a daily basis. I think I would start by saying that, of course, the purpose of NATO, and that's very. I think it's quite important to start with the basic. What is the organization for? It's really to ensure the security, the freedom, and the way of life uh, of the citizens of the 30 allied countries. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to start at, start at the very basic, say, what are we here for? Ensure security, peace, prosperity uh, for nearly 1 billion people, nearly 1 billion citizens across uh, Europe and North America. And uh, and that's really the basic, and that's really what drives everything the alliance do. How does that uh, that said? It does absolutely relate to values, principles, and democracy, because uh, from the very uh, early days of the alliance, so from back in 1949, it was always clear clear that we are about defending defending our. Um, security, of course, but also our way of life, which is grounded and predicated on a series of common, key common values, democracy, freedom, and the rule of law. And that's uh, so important for, for NATO that it was written front and center in the North Atlantic Treaty that basically created the alliance over 70 years ago. So so to go on the second part, if this is so important, how does it reflect and how does it shape what the alliance does, I would say, uh, first of all, it's an underlying guiding principle, if you wish, compass that drives what the, how the alliance behaves. Uh, its, princ its principles, values are reflected in the way it operates in its missions, in its operations, in the, in the way it, it deals with its partners. So it is really, uh, it is really, I would say, part and parcel of how uh, NATO works. Um, throughout its history, having an alliance of uh, Europe and North America working together has contributed, I would say, very significantly to upholding the international democratic rules-based international order. And I think that's an important contribution. How do we work together to, to ensure that this system continues to um, continues to operate and continues to uh, to work in the in the in, in the future. So these are some of the ways. Then of course we could get more into into more micro level examples of how our democratic uh, values shape the work we do, for example, with our partners, being through a human security approach of our uh, corporate cooperative programs, or being through uh, the fact that we run one of the largest uh, 
building integrity in the armed forces programs that looks at how to improve uh, civil military relations, uh, ensure and, and combat corruption in the armed forces. So there's a, there's a number of practical tools that the Alliance has developed over the years to work with its partners when it comes to, uh, to promoting, uh, I wouldn't say promote democracy, but to support our partners efforts in, um, in strengthening their, their, demo their democracies. Um, yeah, so I will put it, I will start like, I would start like that and then we can, of course, talk about it a little bit more. No, of course, of course. And um, I mean, you mentioned obviously security being a, a massive part of, of what NATO is about. Um, and I was wondering if you could elaborate um, for us and explain what is um, Article 5 or the collective defense principle? Yeah, sure. And I think that's that's an excellent really an excellent place to start to think about why do we have an alliance like NATO? What is it all about? And uh, uh, as I said before, it's about it's about in working to it's about 30 countries, now 30 countries at the beginning in 1949, it was 12, but 30 countries coming together and saying we can do better, we can ensure our security in a much more efficient way if we work together if we cooperate uh, through this effective multilateral framework than if we go it alone. So that's the underlying principle. And I think it's very well reflected in, uh, as you mentioned, Article 5, which is uh, the collective defense clause of the North Atlantic Treaty. What does it mean? It's, it means that uh, one of the key principles uh, that all allies that join NATO subscribe to is that an attack against one ally is really an attack against all allies. All for one, one for all. To it's it's a very simple to quote uh, the uh, what's it called the principle. Um, the three musketeers. Very simple yeah. principle, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I think it's uh, it, it, this is what fundamentally security alliances are about. It's about coming together, uh, working together, uh, defending our shared values, principles, and. Uh, um, and in enhancing our, our individual our individual security by coming together, and the, this is basically the principle of Article Five: an attack against one is an attack against all. Which uh, the Secretary General, the current Secretary General of NATO, Jens Stoltenberg, addressed uh, a couple of years ago in 2019, the U.S. Uh, Congress. Uh, upon invitation of uh, upon invitation of the a bipartisan invitation from Congress, and he basically summarized this whole principle with the uh, catchy slogan: "It's good to have friends." And really, that's what an alliance is about. If something happens to you, you got. If something happens to one of our thirty allies, uh, they got twenty nine countries watching their back and being there for them. Yeah, which is which you know. Anyone at any point, you know, it's always good to have friends, even in your personal life. And ironically, countries and international affairs is sounds like it's no different. And um, how many times has this Article 5 been enacted? Right. Um, once. That's an easy answer because uh, because in uh, over 72 years of history, uh, Article 5 was actually invoked uh, one time. Uh, and it was af in the aftermath of the 9-11 uh, terrorist attacks on the United States. Uh, that was uh, the first time that the Alliance came together and said, yes, 
since since 1949 to to de to determine that an attack on one of our allies should have been should be considered as um, as as triggering Article Five. Uh, what that meant was, of course, first and foremost, a very strong uh, signal of political and concrete solidarity with the United States, and then uh, that led to working together to uh, in Afghanistan to ensure. Uh, that um, the country would no longer serve as a hub for transnational terrorist attacks to be planned against uh, any of our allies. So that was the only time that it was um, triggered. And I think it's an interesting, it's kind of interesting in a way, because of course, the, the whole concept of Article 5 was written in 1949, and it's pretty clear that the founders of NATO would have never thought that it would have been used for the first time um, against a terrorist attack. They were probably thinking about conventional war, tanks rolling into one of our countries. So that kind of shows you that this article, this concept would stand the test of time. We are going to defend each other against attack, but that doesn't mean that it has to be a tank crossing a border. Attack can come from space, can come from cyberspace, can come from a terrorist threat. The point is, if it uh, if it is an armed attack against our citizens, our territory, uh, then then Article Five could be applicable. Mm. No, it's interesting. I was I was going to ask you know what, what was um what was unique about nine eleven, but you you kind of you kind of spelled it out really because there is um. It is unique in the sense that, as you say, it was a it was a terrorist attack. It wasn't, you know, a country going after another country or a country invading a country like you would imagine a traditional war or a traditional conflict starting. Um, did that did that get questioned at all? I mean, was that was that seen as a, a potential move away from the original convention or was that seen as kind of like a seamless transition for Article five? I would say if you if the it would I would say the latter more than the former because the concept has always been we need to be ready to defend each other in the hour of need uh, conflict uh, armed force violence war warfare this this changes throughout times so uh, what an how someone may see an attack in 1940 is very different from one what uh, what we may conceive as an attack today in the sense that we now have for example multi-domain operational warfare meaning that we don't just look at uh, potential threats from from land from sea from uh, from the air but we also look at cyberspace our space outer space of course in 1949 no one could could have possibly and reasonably predicted any of this and and the truth is there is no need to predict it if as in this particular case the article is written it is about leaving it uh broad enough uh and uh and clear enough at the same time. This is about armed attack against our countries, but how it's this attack is perpetrated by who and through which means, this will of course change um, as warfare continues to evolve. So we need to be ready for it. Um, and you've, you've mentioned space several times and I'm trying as much as I can um, with the kind of sci-fi nerd in me to uh, uh, not not pull out that, uh, that thread too much yet, but um, uh, this kind of leads, leads me onto Quite nicely to my next question about how have um, the threats to democracy changed over time? Would you say? Right. Well, I think that yeah, it does flow. Now, it, it does flow from from what I was uh, saying before, because of course, threats to democracy. Let's say let's broaden it a little bit. Threats to our society, to our democratic way of life, 
have uh, have become, I would say, over the last uh, years more complex and more diffuse. What do I mean by that? Well, partly this is because we have seen the, I would say, immense impact of social media uh, to as a vehicle to channel this information, to sow disunity, to sow discord, uh, to uh, ultimately seek to weaken our societal cohesion and to um, try to undermine trust in democratic uh, principles, in democratic institutions, and really in, in the system as a whole. So on the one hand, many are saying, well, this is not new. We always had propaganda. We always had challenges to democracies coming from, uh, from authoritarian uh, alternatives. And I think that's certainly true. But the speed and scale and frequency and sophistication of uh, this type of tactics today, I think it's Quantitative, quantitatively and qualitatively different, mm -hmm. different than what we saw in the past. So I think there is a very big, um, there is a very big difference in the space, in the speed and scale through which this information is shared. And there is, of course, uh, a much more connected, globalized, interconnected, digitalized world, which means we're all more, we're all closer to each other, we're all more connected, which is, of course, also very positive. But it also means that the, uh, there are vulnerabilities are shared, and there are more, um, more critical areas that can be exploited. So I would say uh, democracies have always had uh, challenges, but today we really see that. Um, that there is a concerted, and I would say maybe we'll talk more about the geopolitical landscape later on, but there is more and more, especially in recent years, a concerted effort, I would say, by authoritarian countries to use technological tools, to use political tools, to use social tools, to use economic tools, to uh, showcase uh, or, or sometimes even uh, create uh, vulnerabilities in our democratic societies. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a particularly uh, challenging time for 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 our, for our democracies. Yeah, no, definitely. I think um, I think we, we we can all we can all see it in our uh, in our individual daily lives, and and obviously you mentioned this information, and we're, we're definitely gonna uh, touch on that quite a bit um, in a, in a, in a little bit um, in a little bit. Um, and, and and you're quite right. I mean, you know, no one can say that propaganda hasn't always existed, you know, between using pamphlets or word of mouth, like these things have always, you know, this information has always traveled in one way or another. Um, but I think I'd also add that it's it's a lot cheaper and it's a lot easier for even individuals to to start contributing to that, which I think makes it even more um, even more prevalent and even more widespread in the sense that it can literally come from anywhere. Um, it doesn't have to be this great concerted effort by a really wealthy organization or a really wealthy state. It can literally be um, coming from anywhere. Any group can do it. And it's and it's I think that's what makes it potentially so um, so difficult to tackle also. Um, but as I said we'll we'll, um, we'll definitely touch on this information in a bit. I did want to ask, um, do you think the way warfare has changed has affected democratic principles at all? Well. Do I think that's a very interesting question? I, I would say, firstly, I would say, let's start with part one as war for change. And yes, uh, that's that's I would say that's um, I, I would definitely answer in the affirmative. Uh, some of the have some of the trends in the change of warfare also affected 
are democracies? Well, let's think about it uh, together because it's a, it's an it's an interesting question. Uh, firstly, one thing that I would say that we know about the the nature of conflict over the past uh, few decades, especially since the end of World War II, is that we saw we have seen over time a shift from uh, intrastate, so wars between states. Mm-hmm to intrastate wars, so wars within states, so from interstate to intrastate. So we we have seen, if you, if you today pull up a map of political violence and want to see where are civilians mostly affected by conflict, where are civilians killed, where are the major uh, armed conflicts today, you will see that they mostly tend to occur within countries. So and you could take Syria, wars, for example. Correct. Right. Civil wars, Yemen, Syria. Well, if you map the... Um, if you map the hotspots of political violence today, you will indeed look at uh, Syria, uh, in a few, Iraq, but with the different numbers. You will look at Yemen. You will see South Sudan, um, and, and and what I'm and how does that that that's a profound shift to let's say a century ago, where the majority of conflicts was instead between countries as opposed to within. Uh, we could talk for hours about that, what that means in terms of uh, consequences for societies and for democracies, but I would say that one of the trends that is, uh, there's many trends related, but one of them, of course, is the more civil wars, internal conflicts tend to be fought a lot more around and over civilians. Mm. That's why many talk about something called the civilianization of conflict, meaning the civilians are more and more uh, in harm's way, more and more targeted, more and more uh, victimized in, 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 in the context of internal conflicts. And that's certainly a very, uh, very uh, disturbing t- trend, but one that we need to be uh, fully aware of when we think about mitigation and thinking about how to, uh, how to mitigate uh, harm on civilians in the context of our, our harm hostility. So that's a big, that's a big change mm-hmm. that definitely affects, uh, affects, uh, affects uh, countries and societies. And there's, of course, uh, many, many more, but what, what you can see today, and then I'll stop, is uh, not just that you're seeing more internal conflicts, but that over time, the average length of this internal conflict is going up, not down. And the average number of players involved in this conflict is also slightly expanding, which means that a lot of the conflicts today are protracted, so drag over time, deeply political, and they are, yes, civil wars or internal conflicts, but often what we would define as internationalized, meaning there's also an external intervention. And again, you mentioned Syria. Yes, that's that's an example that mm-hmm. uh, that that unfortunately will come to mind as a uh, poster case for this uh, for this that symbolizes this combination of internal violence, external interference, external involvement, and victimization of civilians. And of course, there are many trends that that um, that this. There's many, these trends have a lot of impacts. One of them is that uh, if you look at the number of internally displaced persons and refugees in the world, you can see that over the the last 10 years, these numbers are going up in a quite... quite sharp way. Mm. And a lot of this is driven by internal conflict. So this is just one example to say, to really link what is happening in the way, to really link the fact that the way wars are fought as deep, Mm. long-term impactful consequences 
on on civilians and on their lives and of course this undermines democracy uh, very directly no of course of course because obviously um and it's interesting that you mentioned that that kind of change and the um almost you know increased civilian involvement in conflicts because if you think of a kind of you know traditional war or what we see as a traditional war if that's even a thing is you know as, as you as you said you know you have two two countries um two countries armed forces that would that would act as combatants and then often civilians would be moved out of a potentially conflict uh, conflict heavy zone um whereas with this internalization of conflicts you it's often unclear as to which you know how many actors are involved who's a combatant who isn't sometimes um and as you say it's you know deeply political why do you think there is that kind of shift between in you know country to country conflict and now this kind of internal country conflict that we've that we've seen more and more in you know in recent times I mean, libraries have been filled trying answering answering this question. So I will, uh, I will. Uh, I know I'm asking I, you a massive question in, <laughs> in no little time. Now you think that what I'm gonna say it's gonna be only a partial a partial reply. Of course. But I think there's been I mean there's been clearly many many processes that have influenced these trends in warfare, uh, in the change of warfare from interstate to interstate. Very very significantly, uh, many many historians look at the post 1945 period and the beginning of a cold, of the Cold War as the defining geopolitical. Uh, one of the the funny geopolitical um, dynamic for 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 many decades, from 45 to 89, fundamentally, and in a world of uh, bipolar superpower, su bipolar superpowers, uh, averting uh, and shifting away from the brink of nuclear conflict, that was a powerful deterrent to conventional war, of course. And so for many years, conventional war between, with, uh, with the idea of a conventional or nuclear war between the two superpowers being uh, uh, rightfully thought as uh, impossible, uh, that facilitated... Or insanity, uh, if it ever happened. Or insanity, yes, I would agree strongly. That, that, that led to more, um, if, you were, if you wish, conflict by proxies, for mm -hmm. example. Uh, and that's one that's one dynamic then of course after then you have like the, vietnam uh, for, for instance with the correct mm. that then you have of course a uh, powerful de uh, post-colonial decolonization uh historical period through which through which you have um liberation movements uh, uh, leading to a very uh, complex path uh, of political reforms, of political change, and oftentimes, uh, oftentimes uh, seeing uh, different political communities that found themselves through because of colonial engineering stitched up in the same country, in which they didn't particularly uh, feel uh, shared belonging. That also generated uh, a number of what we call the post-colonial internal struggles. So there's different dynamics that all converge. Um, of course, uh, of course, I would never, uh, in addition to all this, I would say the fact that a lot of the conflicts that we have seen throughout the past decades have been um, internal conflict does not mean that um, the possibility of conflict between countries or the possibility of conventional war has been eliminated. Unfortunately, that is not the case. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, of course not. Of course not. It's just obviously the, 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 the more common or the... Or the um uh i don't want to say on trend because that sounds incredibly wrong but um 
the, the the one that's the one that's been seen more often than not is is the internal in the internal conflict Correct. and 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 what you're saying is really interesting because it is very much that uh, as you say you know that that uh decolonization meaning a lot of countries were were starting to govern themselves um as you say because of colonialism you have these different groups and so forth that were found in a in a country that they may not necessarily feel belonging um plus the power vacuums obviously lead to a a series of potential potential conflicts as 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 we're seeing now um and 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 to ask would you say um are the emerging threats still rooted in geopolitics or not great question because now we've uh, I, w- I was giving you a little bit of a snapshot of um let's say the the main data when it comes to civilian mm-hmm. casualties in armed conflict and the data there is pretty clear um but that of course doesn't mean that nothing else is happening in the background and uh and that's that's why i think a question about geopolitical dynamics is is, is still very relevant mm-hmm. uh, and particularly relevant today i would say that if i look at the current security environment i would definitely say that one of the defining trends that i see unfolding is the resurgence the return the intensifying of geopolitical competition um Okay. That does not, when I say geopolitical competition, we don't have to think about it in terms of military conflict, of course. That's the very that's the very big difference. But I think today, when you think about geopolitical competition, you, you really need to think about um, ideological competition over mm-hmm. dem- democratic systems versus authoritarian one. It is a technological competition over a technological uh, race, on, over who's going to have technological edge on issues like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, big data. So there is a very big, strong, there is a strong dynamic of technological competition. There is a dynamic of ideological competition. There is an economic competition dimension. Um, There is a political one. There is a societal one. So I would say it is a complex, multi-domain competition, but not necessarily one that you need to uh, that you need to equate with military conflict, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that's a very important caveat. But I still think it's a defining trend of our of the international system uh, today, and of the uh, the security environment uh, more specifically. And that plays out also in um, in what I see as the growing pressure that is um, that I would say uh, is being put uh, on the rules based international order. Mm-hmm. Meaning that for for many years it was obvious that there was one rules based international order, and more or less uh, we can reform it, we can change it, we can tweak around it. But it is the uh, but the democratic rules based international order. Uh, I, I I see I, I would say as itself was not being questioned. Whether today I think I'm not necessarily sure that's the case. I think there are, as I said, there is an authoritarian pushback led by Russia and China that really is questioning the premises of the order itself and more specifically its democratic premises. So that I think that's uh, geopolitical trends are incredibly significant. Um, they do not and they go hand in hand, of course, with the with the with the data I was telling you, I was discussing about civil wars and mm-hmm. armed conflict, meaning the world is a complex and difficult places and both things can be happening at the same time. Great powers may be uh, competing across domains and at the same time we may be we may be seeing hotspots of political violence driven by different reasons. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, um, nothing's ever straightforward, is it? As always. <laughs> but, um, no, but I think it's important because today is very fashionable to mm. try to 
to to see the world through one one predominant lens and that may work but sometimes mm -hmm. we can also throw our arms in the throw our arms up in the air and say well it's more than one thing yeah no definitely i mean yeah and then there's definitely a trend i mean if you can't describe it in 100, 120 characters it's not important right it's that kind of social yeah. media mentality unfortunately <laughs> and we will get onto that in a second but um um, what, what you're saying is really interesting because, again, it, it's the idea of um, changing what what security or what um, prosperity or whatever word we want to use it, it, it means, right? Because it's not just about what, who has the bigger gun or who has the, the more manpower or who has the better economy. It's also, you know, a technological edge can can mean a massive boost to a country's security or a country's ability to operate elsewhere. Um, I mean, the complexities of AI and what that could mean, nobody really knows how far that technology can stretch or what possible things we can discover in the future. So it's all, um, it all plays a part on, on, on pushing a country or in this case, NATO um, as, as, as a group of countries kind of edge on, on other people. And you mentioned obviously that this is kind of this, this, this pushback against democratic ideas. Because I think for a lot of us, we grew up with this idea that you know democracy was unquestionable in the sense that it's a thing that everyone kind of accepted as a norm um but it doesn't seem to necessarily be the case anymore um and i was wondering if, if you could if you kind of thought as to why that trend is suddenly now a thing well that's another that's another very difficult question but <laughs> I, I would say well firstly i would say perhaps over the years um, there may have been even a little bit too much complacency mm. uh, in the sense that uh, there was, especially in the early 90s, so I'm going quite back in time, but the sense of the end of history and the fact that, you know, we had weathered rougher storms and now we're going through this sort of linear path of convergence, all countries eventually will uh, will decide that, that liberal democracy is what works for them. And we're through open trade and more exchange, economic exchanges, we're going to be more connected and we're all going to converge basically toward the same, uh, the same conclusion. So there was a little bit of determinism there mm -hmm. uh, and a little bit of complacency. And, and I think over time, uh, this, uh, sort of this very uh this optimist but i think also a little naive view of the world has been has been time and time and again proven wrong so today we're sort of reckoning with the fact that well that's democracy is one system so there are others uh democracy may we we i certainly would be this is when uh, of course uh winston churchill's famous quote uh, may democracy may be the worst system except for all the alternatives comes to mind but and I profoundly believe that, but I also profoundly believe that we always, we cannot take it for granted and uh, we have to continue to invest in its strength and its renewal. Uh, we need to work more with partners across the world that are democratic, but they have, may have chosen a different, uh, different political system than ours, but share our same, uh, our same values. So uh, I think that, uh, that there is a little bit of a, of a rude awakening, but probably one that is incredibly necessary to say, well, actually, democracy is not inevitable. Democracy has to be fought for. You cannot take it for granted. All the rights that you grew up thinking that are absolutely uh, 
inalienable and unquestionable well guess what someone has fought for them and you might you need to remember that and you need to remember that you need to continue to to be actively engaged in your society to make sure that you maintain them so i, I think it's a there of course it's a, it's a rude awakening in some extent but it's a it's also positive in the way that I think we all need to be reminded that, you know, freedom and democracy are not for free. So unless we are actively engaged in defending and upholding them, we may not be able to preserve them. So it's more of a call to action, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen to that, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, it, it's so true because I think um, especially um, in the West where we... Um, you know, there's a lot of freedoms from, you know, things like, um, I mean, you know, the ability to, to vote if you're over 18 um, and, and over 16 in, in, in certain states, um, you know, the, the ability to say pretty much what you want to, to, to a vast extent without the fear of, you know, to be completely frank, getting shot, which is, which is something that actually in quite a lot of parts of the world, you don't have that ability to do. Um, and yeah, the ability to have elections where you, um, you know, have the confidence to know that the, that the vote will be respected, that, you know, there's not going to be a random coup at some point and, you know, all these kind of relevant stabilities that we very much do, I think, take for granted, you're right. And I think um, we've forgotten that, that there was a lot of blood, sweat and tears that, that got us to this point to to have these kind of levels to freedom of freedom to have this conversation on this podcast without the fear of retribution like these are all really important um you know rights that at certain at a certain point you know could potentially be taken away depending on how how the world goes in the however distant future so it is something that you're right we do need to fight for we do need to not take for granted um, and yeah, it is a rude awakening, but I think it's an awakening that at some point needed to happen because, you know, we have become complacent a little bit in terms of um, our democracy and the kind of the the um, the privilege that we that we find ourselves in in, in a lot of ways. Um, just before we move on to technology, I did want to ask, um, has do you think the, the geopolitical pressure points have changed since the Cold War? And if and if so, in what way or if they've stayed the same? Right. No, I definitely would. Would I, I definitely would? Uh, again, uh, you ask uh, incredibly difficult questions, but uh, let's start the, to start the, the morning, right? Is, <laughs> <laughs> but the short the short answer is yes. We are in a different. This is a different. Uh, this is a different world, uh, which may be an obvious answer, but I think it's important because sometimes uh, you do hear. Uh, parallels drawn and I think it's very important and this is also a message that that as NATO leadership continues to send in a very clear way we do not see the word uh, through the Cold War lens mm -hmm. uh, that that time period has passed uh, certainly we do not seek a new Cold War that uh, that would uh, that also is obvious but it's important to repeat but but it's not just um, it's not just what we don't want, it's also what the world is not like. Mm -hmm. uh, over the over the years of the Cold War, you had a bipolar uh, international order with two uh, nuclear superpowers and I would say two fairly defined ideological, political and military camps. Uh, you, had, uh, you had a system in which the two economies were uh, fairly uh, separate, not 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 incredibly intertwined. If I look at in, if I look at the the Soviet Union, the United States, you had a, a massive. I could go over. I could go over all the different 
dynamics and we would see how all of this is different today. Mm -hmm. Firstly, you don't have a bipolar international order. Uh, you can think about it more as a multipolar, for example. Mm -hmm. So you can't look at everything through the lens of two main powers. I, I don't think that would be sufficient. Um, you, you do have, uh, as we talked about the resurgence of geopolitical competition, you do have a more assertive Russia, you do have a rise in and more asserting on the international state China. So you do have trends of competition, but they are fundamental, first, they're fundamentally, uh, I would say, different. And of course, also the level of interconnectedness, digitalization, globalization of the world is so different from the times of the Cold War that some of our, uh, some of the prism through which we looked at rivalry, for example, contain and isolate, uh, well, they look very different when mm -hmm. you when you apply them to a world that is as interconnected and digitalized as ours. So I, I just, I, I, this is just a little caveat to say, we may, if we look uh, we can find similarities, we can find trends, we can find patterns, but fundamentally, I don't think that's the, that, that would be the accurate lens through which, through which to look at the world today. Of course, of course, no, thank you. And um, on to um, technology, and, and obviously you mentioned disinformation um, quite a few times uh, earlier in this episode, but um, I mean, you know, we've all seen it with, with say, you know, the, the pandemic about how misinformation can just rip through a society, how much it can influence um, taking the vaccine, for example. Um, and then, as you mentioned, you know, state actors potentially using this to, to their advantage. So how is NATO responding to this new threat of disinformation? Great. No, this is another, uh, it's another important question because, of course, uh, we talked, we started at the beginning by what is NATO for? It's about security, it's mm. about defense. And then we talk about the, the fact that for many years we saw that through the lens of uh, conventional war, because, of course, that was the most probable of all forms of attacks we may have uh, suffered. Uh, as an alliance, then of course 9-11 changed that broadly, uh, broadening the spectrum and looking at what about threats posed by non-state actors, by mm -hmm. terrorism. Uh, but then today I would say we have broadened it even further because we're talking about, of course, the threat of conventional warfare is something we need to remain able to uh, to protect ourselves against, to, to prevent and to secure peace. So that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. We also need to continue to be able to contribute to fight terrorism. So all these all these issues remain true today, but there's, the, the, I think it's a bit, it's a big but, there's a, no, a, a growing number of non-military challenges to our societies that have a, that can have a direct impact on our security and on our democracies and our values. And this information is one of them. I would put that, I would broaden it a little bit and say, today our adversaries or potential competitors, use the word that you want, but they really use um, a number of tools in an integrated way. So being disinformation, being attacks on our electoral system, being uh, strategic investments in our critical infrastructure to create dependencies, being injection of corrupted, ca corrupt, corrosive capitals uh, to uh, to uh, gain favors and uh, and so disunity in our society. There's all these different economic, social, political tools that are being used at the same time, and these are not military attacks, right? But of course, and that's why we get into the hybrid debate. They mm. are they are a mix of sometimes they're a mix of military and non-military, but often they're fundamentally non-military. But they're still aimed 
to undermine our security and they still have an impact on our society. So the question, so for us as NATO, they're still relevant, but of course the answers are different. Mm -hmm. For example, when you talk about this disinformation, we have uh, we have a number of, uh, of programs and tools that we use. One is, of course, we work on resilience. This is incredibly important. Uh, one of the ways through which we can contribute to to making our societies more resilient is by, uh, well, for example, we invest in secure, uh, critical, and digital infrastructure. Uh, I, I'm getting, I'm starting with the broad, and then I'll get more specific. Yeah, but no, this course. is very important. We need to have uh, secure data policies. We need to have, uh, we need to have the ability to share intelligence and information so that we can be all aware of what's happening. So these are all things that NATO is doing in the background that help to fight this information. And then, of course, we also uh, more directly do things like uh, work with civil society to uh, to set the record straight. So provide whenever there are um, fake news, disinformation that is being circulated, uh, prepare a fact-based, verifiable, independently verifiable uh, answer. So try to, uh, to, to provide a, to never mirror the tactics of those who are using this, uh, this, uh, this, uh, this information. To the contrary, to uh, promote a high standard of transparency, to be fact-based, to be open to, to independent journalism. So to really model, and that goes back to the first mm -hmm. thing I said, we need to model and live our values. Uh, so these are some of the things that we are doing. We're also working with partners because, as I said, this is a non-military challenge. Mm -hmm. So it requires non-military tools and it requires working with others, such as the European Union. Uh, for example, we have a joint uh, countering hybrid threat center in Helsinki, in Finland, where we cooperate and work together. Uh, so there's many, many different things that are being done. But uh, the, the, the main point is that whereas 70 years ago, not, nobody would have thought that, that these non-military challenges uh, would really raise to be significant enough to impact our security today we're taking them very seriously mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah no of course and it's and it's again uh, you know contributing to that that changing world that we were referring to earlier and um leads me quite nicely onto my next question which is you know the internet has allowed for ideas to be disseminated globally which you know there, there's a ton of benefits to that you know it's given us access to huge amounts of information um and our fingertips it's also given us access to huge amount of garbage and our fingertips as well unfortunately um a lot of the stuff you know you can put anything out there with zero accountability um not to mention obviously this being potentially propagated or, or pushed or shared through through social media platforms um so how has this new um how is this new challenge of you know the fact that the internet you know and social media means that you can kind of spread things globally with with, with zero accountability, really. Um, how has this new challenge uh, been faced by, by NATO in terms of the purely technological side? Well, a, it's, it's another complicated question because, of course, uh, there's also another side to the story, uh, which is, of course, you, you, you started with, which is there's so many benefits to happen uh, to happen and maintaining an open, free internet. And that's something that, of course, relates very closely to the initial point I made about values and principles. So uh, 
so there is an honest, there is a genuine debate of how to balance different needs. I will not particularly go into how NATO deals with it because I want to make a very important point. NATO itself does not have the power to regulate mm -hmm. um, the internet. No, no, of course. This is not so, or to pass laws. And so I just make it clear, mm -hmm. just for our, if just for our listener who may not spend like me the whole day thinking about NATO, which I don't blame them for, just to <laughs> just to set the record straight, we do we we cannot do that, and we don't want to do that. We are we are a political military alliance that look at security and defense. So there are other bodies, other institutions that really have the tools uh, to 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 work on the very important issue you raise from a NATO communication perspective. Uh, I think that the I think that the the the, the approaches we invest significantly in our ability to monitor, understand, have a strong situational awareness and share intelligence among the allies. So one thing is we work so that everybody uh, can understand what's going on, which is incredibly important. And we follow and we track it and we monitor. Uh, then and understanding we, a problem is is kind of almost point one, isn't it? That you got to understand that I problem before you can deal with it. I would say so. And I would say that it's incredibly important when you do it with 30 countries, then you can right. really uh, create an economy of scale, if you wish, by by pulling and sharing your data and working together. Mm -hmm. So that's part of the, the approach. Then, of course, when it comes to responding, when something is targeted at the organization, I go back to the point. It's about being fact-based, open, transparent, verifiable, reliable, working with independent media, uh, talk the talk and walk the walk, in other words. And uh, and, and and the organization itself will not get in the, does not have the tools or demand it, if you mm -hmm. wish, to, to, to get into that very important uh, debate that our societies need to have. And that is a fundamentally political debate about how do we approach this uh, very uh, disturbing convergence of trends that you highlight. One of the ways through which you combat um, is information, this information is by being out there and engaging and uh, also doing it, I would say, in uh, as open and a transparent way as possible, because um, there is sometimes a sense and especially, and I think this applies to all governments and all institutions that um, sometimes communication is done, is done as a one-way street. And I think when that, meaning that uh, someone is talking down to someone else and I think when that is done it doesn't particularly serve the purpose of uh, of actually I don't want to say change minds that's not necessarily the point but to present your case and to present your facts and then to have an open uh, an open exchange so I think it's 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 about uh, understanding monitoring information uh, being fact-based and also uh, engaging uh, with a broad set of actors, not just with those who are already agree with you, but also with those who do not and doing it in an honest and open way. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And and what role would you say geopolitics plays in these in, in these kind of threats? You know, especially because, you know, threats like disinformation can be done behind behind a computer screen with, with essentially almost zero account. I mean, I wouldn't say almost, I'd say zero accountability, actually. Well, yeah, of course, this this is also another, uh, I think I, I, I think I would say that manipulation of information, disinformation mm. uh, is also part and parcel of geopolitical competition today. That does not mean, and I think you made this point earlier on in our conversation, that all misinformation or disinformation necessarily originates from a large uh, uh, superpower or from a from right. an authoritarian country. We have plenty of people in our own societies who are more 
than happy to either work with uh, with those or who have their own genuine uh, grievances and agendas. So oh. that's important to say. But there is also when you look at the uh, at the level of the quantity and at the money spent behind uh, orchestrating uh, hybrid disinformation campaigns, you can see that there's also a geopolitical competition element. And that's the same when you look at attempts to uh, to uh, undermine the faith in our democratic institutions, in our democratic processes, in our elections. It is clear that that does not come only and exclusively from state actors, but there is a geopolitical competition element. And that what makes it even harder to contrast because of course the level of resources and technology invested is quite significant and as you rightly point out we need to continue to improve our capacity to attribute mm. this uh these actions and to impose uh costs for them which by, by which i mean of course the costs can come in many different shapes of forms so we from diplomatic to economic reply to economic tools we we need to think as societies at what how can we make um, the cost of these actions higher so that there is a so that those who are invested in in them uh, are better deterred and so that and and at the same time how can we make our society more resilient so that they are less uh, vulnerable so mm -hmm. I think we need to do both and we are to be fair but of course these are new trends and they're constantly evolving so the work will have to continue. So thank you so much, um, Benedetta, for 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 that um, amazing amazing talk. It's been really really interesting, really really insightful, and a lot a lot to think about. Um, as you said, you know, it's not just the kind of security in the traditional sense. It's a lot to do with um, a whole rounded approach. Um, you know, from from uh, our perspective, there's a lot around education, for example, because again, um, disinformation would just be a hell of a lot less effective if people knew what good fact-based information looked like, how to catch it. Um, if we were all a bit more critical and, you know, resilient to this kind of stuff, then um, I think it would just make everything a lot easier. And I think um, although the the pandemic isn't quite to do with geopolitics necessarily, but it kind of highlighted a lot of things, I think, for, for everyone in the sense that how easy it is for us to be misled and, um, you know, certain things that were coming out of the World Health Organization or they were coming out from different government departments, you know, uh, health departments, it, things that, that should have been easy to push to the public or that should, you know, that should have been easy to to inform actually became um, open for debate, strangely. And I think a lot of that was to do with the fact of how easy it is for dis and misinformation to really grip society. And it kind of Shows that there's a lot, a lot of work to be done, but um, this has been really, really interesting. Again, thank you so, so much um, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to season three of Media Minded, the show guiding you through the age of disinformation. This podcast is produced by Shata UK and edited by Sabina McKenzie Brown. Make sure to follow Shoutout UK on Twitter and Instagram to get updates on all our upcoming episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to the Media Minded podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast fixed. This podcast is made possible by the generous support and sponsorship of the US Mission to NATO. Thanks for listening, and remember, stay informed.